It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law. Featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker, an attorney and a partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to maukbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Or call us at 312-726-1243. Will it ever be possible to overturn Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that led to so much loss of life when it um, nationalized abortion? Today, we'll be speaking with Clark Forsyth, who serves as senior counsel with Americans United for Life, a national public policy organization with a mission to achieve comprehensive legal protection for human life from conception to natural death. I've known uh, Clark for a very long time, and I would say he's a senior statesman within the pro-life movement, and it is a tremendous honor to have him on our show today. Uh, Clark is also the author of two books, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe v. Wade, and Politics for the Greatest Good, A Case for Prudence in the Public Square. He and his wife, Karen, have been married for nearly 38 years and have five daughters and six grandchildren. Clark, very, very welcome to the show. Thanks, Rich. It's uh, great to be with you. Uh, I'm sitting across from you. Your three books are spread out, or actually two books and one of your law review articles are spread out. Uh, And our show is going to go really fast, so I want to jump right in. Uh, Let's start uh, with a little bit of background. Um, Tell us a little bit, just for our listeners, and some of them are are newer to the world than than 1973, tell us about Roe v. Wade and and, uh, what happened there and how you got involved in the pro-life movement. Well, um, the Supreme Court issued uh, a shocking decision in January 1973 in Roe v. Wade and the companion decision of Doe v. Bolton, which together um, launched the U.S. on a radical abortion license. Uh, um, the two decisions together legalized abortion for any reason at any time of pregnancy uh, in all 50 states. Uh, we are one of only four nations of 195 that allow abortion for any reason after fetal viability. And one of only seven countries of 195 that allow abortion for any reason after 20 weeks. And the court has imposed that for 46 years and Um, prevented the American people from uh, deciding the issue and uh, prevented the states from protecting life. Uh, Jumping off from from those statements, now you've been involved in the fight since when? Uh, Well, I first got involved with AUL in 1983 or 84, uh, and I joined a staff council in February 1985. So next February, it'll be uh, 35 years. That's a long time to be fighting for something. Uh, tell us a little bit about how what you see as the fight and where are you going with this? What is the hope of AUL and, and what are you trying to do? Well, again, our, our mission is comprehensive legal protection of human life from conception and natural death. So we work on the span of pro-life issues, the span of bio, bioethical issues in the courts, legislatures, the media uh, across the country. Um, So abortion is one part of that, but it's a huge part because the court uh, for 46 years has prevented the states from 
basically acting on public opinion and protecting life. Um, and uh, so um, uh, we take what I would call a prudential approach to this. Um, that's, which, a t- that's part of a title of your book, by the way, and I'm yes. going to want to get into that. So go ahead. What um, is this approach? So, uh, well, it, 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 it has to grasp what Roe is and did and how it obstructed public policy that protects life. And uh, that involves working through the courts, but it involves also working through state legislation uh, and the states because the states uh, can act when the court won't act or Congress won't act. Federalism, the federalist structure of our constitutional system has been a boon to the pro-life movement, has allowed the pro-life movement to act and reflect public opinion protecting life uh, when we're stymied in the courts or, or in Congress. So, so you indicated for 35 years you've been in this fight. Uh, and, and from a federal perspective and from the Supreme Court in so many ways, it's been a discouraging fight for those years. Uh, it's been a frustrating fight, okay. which is part of living in this fallen world of ours. And, um, uh, and it has been frustrating because of the obstacles we face in the political climate, in the legislative arena, uh, and the fact that we're not working in a vacuum. We're fighting against the ACLU and wealthy foundations and a major political party and um, uh, uh, billionaires who are funding to prop up Roe versus Wade. Uh, So it is frustrating. But um, we have been making progress, I mean, at, at, at every point of obstruction. We have seen a way to circumvent those obstructions as much as possible and make gains despite the Casey decision in 1992. And I I would say, especially since the 2016 elections, seeing the court uh, improve, seeing the courts improve, seeing the states, a growing number of states that have protected life in other ways, and a growing number of pro-life legislatures with pro-life, working pro-life majorities in the state legislatures. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker of the law firm of Malk and Baker. If you're just tuning in, make sure to visit MalkBaker.com to hear the rest of this interview. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, I'm speaking with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel with Americans United for Life. And we've been talking about the Roe v. Wade decision. And where we left off when I so rudely cut into our conversation was this fight is a frustrating fight, but it's a real fight and there's real progress being made. That's what I hear you saying. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you, you know, I, I take a historical perspective uh, to this. Uh, uh, look at the, uh, for example, the example of William Wilberforce in in Great Britain who fought for uh, 50, 60 years, uh, you know, against the slave trade to to ban the slave trade and then ban slavery itself in the British Empire. I look at the civil rights fight in the U.S. Uh, I mean, slavery existed for 200 years before the 19th century anti-slavery movement even got up and running. Um, and then it was, uh, you know, 30 years until the Civil War and then you know, 20 years of reconstruction, and then there was Jim Crow for another six, 60 years and until uh, 58 years between Plessy and Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. So 46 years is frustrating, but civil rights fights have taken longer. 
you know, when you say all that, there's there's a certain stamina and a, a very long-term perspective that you have to take, I think, if you're going to get into a fight like this. Uh, well, I, I do feel I'm called as a Christian uh, to this work. Uh, and certainly, um, uh, I am aided day by day by, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in addition, um, I would say that unless you have a high tolerance for frustration, <laughs> do not get involved in public policy or politics. So let me take you back for a second. You say, as a Christian, you've been called to this. Where does your Christian faith connect with the thing that you're doing here for the fight for pro-life? Um, well, it, it, uh, interacts on so many different levels. I mean, a day to day spiritual walk, um, a relationship with Christ. Um, uh, it also, uh, at the level of, uh, philosophy and theology in understanding the nature of justice and, um, campaigning for justice in a constitutional Republic, but also, um, you know, my, my book, Politics for the Greatest Good, uh, was about the biblical virtue of prudence and the classical virtue of prudence. And what they tell me first uh, about Scripture is that instead of looking for mos at Mosaic law for guidance in our strategy, uh, I think we would learn more from what I call the four heroes of the Old Testament, Daniel Nehemiah, Joseph, and Esther, who were exiles, and exhibited or, and, 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 and applied political power in pagan regimes, and succeeded in pursuing justice and the greatest good possible uh, as, as Jewish believers in pagan regimes. And I think they can give more guidance, I think, uh, to us uh, in, in working through American politics and public policy. Uh, you're hitting some of my my highlights when you begin to talk about that. So why would you use the exiles as opposed to, let's say, Moses or David or some of those who were part of a kingdom, uh, theoretically, that was a uh, established on biblical basis? Uh, because our, our constitutional republic in the United States, however good it is, and I think it's the best government in the world, is not a theocracy. Uh, we aren't governed by priests. We aren't governed by kings. We don't have a theocracy. Um, we have a, a constitutional republic which, uh, through liberty, allows us to espouse our faith and work through religious liberty. Um, but it is, uh, it is secular in so many ways. And, um, and I, I think uh, looking at the prudential approach that... Uh, Esther, Nehemiah, Joseph, and Daniel pursued, I think, is is a better guide for us in the reality of the system in which we work today. So, and, and I'll begin a question. We'll probably get cut off by break, but, and what is that pattern that you see with the exiles? Well, uh, they were faithful Jewish believers. Um but they sought the greatest good in the context and constraints they had. Coming up, we will talk further with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel with Americans United for Life, about the best strategy to protect unborn life through the law. And we'll also look at the examples from the Old Testament in regard to how to fight that fight. 
I'm Rich Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. This is Tom Morrison for Family Pack. Family Pack is pleased to announce that its Defender of the Faith Award was presented to the outstanding Christian law firm of Mock and Baker. For over 30 years, Mock and Baker has led the fight in Illinois for a free exercise of religious liberty and protection as guaranteed by the First Amendment. I don't know of anyone who has done more to protect our Christian values for our churches, in our schools, and against government attack and interference than Mock and Baker. Mock and Baker is the law firm which Family Pack uses both in Illinois and federal cases to protect your religious freedom. If you have a legal need or question and would like the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact Mock and Baker at 312-726-1243 or visit their website at www.mockbaker.com. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker, an attorney with a law firm of Mauk and Baker. We are based in Chicago, and we serve churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals and their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, go to maukbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, I'm talking with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel with Americans United for Life. And we ended the last segment, and he had talked about the biblical example of um, some of the great figures of the exile, um, Daniel, Esther, and I'm not remembering who the other two you mentioned were. Who were Joseph they? Joseph and Nehemiah. Oh, Joseph and Nehemiah. Okay. So tell us a little more about that perspective and how you're um, adopting what you're doing to the model you saw in the scriptures that they followed. Well, I think they are exemplars of the biblical virtue uh, of prudence, practical wisdom. Uh, which is right reason about what is to be done. And they, all four of them, were um, caught in a conflict uh, and a, a controversy of different kinds, you know, four different contexts, four different problems. And yet they used practical wisdom to seek righteousness, to seek justice um, uh, against the specific obstacles they had and the specific context they had. So that, that, that's the that's the consistent thread. But otherwise their situations were very different. Uh, yes, Joseph in prison, um, Daniel um, being politically incorrect in a in a intolerant situation, uh, Esther's uh, favor in the inside circles of Babylon and yet being faced with either if she truly identified with uh, her people uh, facing a death sentence um, and Nehemiah in the reconstruction of a very, very oppressed people coming back to a very, very uh, difficult situation uh, with much opposition. So yes, each, of, the, each and, of those. Yes. And um, the starting place uh, for prudence is discernment uh, in a number of different ways, but discerning the nature of the problem and discerning the solution. And um, e each of them were faced with that challenge um, and thereby exemplified a prudential approach to it. Now, one of the things about prudence, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to your books because I've been thinking about this. I, I heard a, a recent lecture where the person was maintaining that to fight evil, 
uh, the way you do that is through virtue. And the first of the virtues is prudence. But he said that prudence in its classical sense was a definition of actually knowing what is the reality of the world and the world that God has created and beginning in that place. A starting point. Yes. But, 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 but then you have to act on it. Oh, I, I, but, 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 but there's courage, there's justice, there's other virtues that, that are the action from that beginning of prudence, which is really understanding what is um, and the, the nature of reality. So mm-hmm. I'm, yes. I'm very yes. interested in yes. following up with your, your books mm-hmm. on this. And of course, there's the three um, uh, Christian values of faith, hope, and charity, or faith, hope, mm-hmm. and, and love. So Yes. Um, and he mentioned those as the way to fight evil. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. really thinking a great deal about that, and I'll be looking mm-hmm. at your book. All right, tell us a little bit about this. You, you've got two books out there. They're not light reading. They're reading that takes a lot of thought. Tell us about Abusive Discretion. Well, that was my second book in, in 2013, and uh, it tells the inside story of Roe versus Wade. It, it tells the, um, the two years of deliberations in 1971 and 72 leading up to the Supreme Court's decision. It, it, tell, it tells how the court went off the rails uh, in Roe versus Wade and kind of the manipulations and misunderstandings and um, power plays behind the scenes that produced uh, Roe versus Wade based upon reading the personal papers of eight of the nine justices who voted in Roe versus Wade. And, uh, and, and I wrote it um, uh, based on a, a couple of questions I had at the time. How did the court do this? Why was it so sweeping? How did they throw a decision upon the country that has sparked such political and social and medical turmoil for 46 years? What Did they know what they were doing? And uh, I, 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 I believe that uh, when I got done, I under, not only understood why the court went off the rails, but uh, I think I had a clear sense of um, how it uh, can be attacked and overcome. You leave great questions for me right there. Number one, how did that happen? Number two, of your questions, did they know what they were doing? And then I think that we should uh, jump right into then what's the path forward based on on your observations so well, how, so did they know what they're doing no they didn't and they didn't know what they were doing because they had no evidentiary record no trial no evidence no expert testimony no reliable data about abortions or its implications for women's health for unborn life um uh, for uh, house, uh, what kind of you know um, the, the scope of the right that they were creating? They they knew nothing about any of that, and that's because um, they took two cases with no evidence about abortion or its implications. And uh, Roe versus Wade is really an accident of history, because in after they took these cases, the two cases Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, to basically decide some obscure jurisdictional issues that only lawyers would be interested in. Um, There was a crisis in the court when Justice Black retired uh, due to ill health, died a week later. Justice Harlan, both of whom I think would have voted against a national right to abortion, also retired uh, due to ill health, reduced the number of justices to seven, flipped the balance of the court to a 4-3 majority that was pro-abortion. And those four saw these two cases and said, before these vacancies are filled, we can strike down the laws against abortion. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Rich Baker of Malkin Baker, and we're talking with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel with Americans United for Life. We've been talking about uh, his book, 
Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe v. Wade, and we're really looking at how this decision came about. You know what? I'm familiar with all of this, but I'm still shocked as I listen to you describe it. I have been of the impression that Roe v. Wade and the uh, imposition of the sexual revolution through the Supreme Court has really skewed our laws in the United States. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? And what you're describing seems to really uh, apply here. Yes, this sir. is not precedent. This is not how the court normally functions. No, it isn't. Or is supposed to function. No, it isn't. It's, it's one of the most abusive decisions the court's ever issued. It's one of the most result-oriented decisions the court's ever issued. And you're indicating but, with no evidence. Uh, what what do you right. mean when you say no evidence? No trials. Uh, these uh, cases were both decided on procedural issues. There was no trial, no testimony. And they went, and instead of going up to an intermediate appellate court, because of the rules of the day, there was a three-judge district court went straight up to the Supreme Court. So everything you read in Justice Blackmun's majority opinion is not in the record. It's derived from interest group briefs, like Planned Parenthood's brief, filed in the Supreme Court for the first time. And... Um, um, that has not gotten the attention it ha needs. Now, why are we here 46 years later? That's because um, billionaires and hundreds of foundations and advocacy organizations are working 24-7 to prop up Roe versus Wade, just as we are working to push it over. Um, so it immediately got a, 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 uh, a bevy of interest groups um, behind the decision to obscure what had been done, to promote it, to market it. And um, um, and that has continued for 46 years, as you know. It's, it's interesting that the balance of the court can change. Like we had the Scalia death, and, and you're mentioning in Roe v. Wade, and frankly, I'd forgotten this, that two of the justices were knocked out after the case had been accepted, but before the decision made. Uh, and And the incredible effect that that has had in this particular case, uh, currently with the appointment of um, Justice Gorsuch and the huge fight over that, but how important that has been for uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence. Um, all right, so tell me a little bit more. Um, we're, we're looking at this. Um, what's, the, what's the path forward? You said part of this was a path forward, and I had asked this question. Will it ever be possible to overturn Roe v. Wade um, and move on. Yes, I uh, because of abuse of discretion and the research and conclusions I reached there, uh, I'm convinced that the court sooner or later will have to revisit its mistake and the negative impact of Roe versus Wade on women, uh, unborn children, families, and society. Uh, and the path forward is a combination of a couple of things. First of all, we don't think of the court as a political institution, but it is shaped by politics. Presidents nominate, the Senate confirms. Presidents and senators are elected. So elections will shape the future. So from that, I hear we need to be involved in our political process. Absolutely. And knowledgeable about it. Yes, informed. Uh, Clark, thanks for this first uh, visit with us. We are not done with this conversation. And, and I haven't even got to your second book. Um, how can people get a hold of your books and learn more about Americans United for Life? Well, our website um, uh, for Americans United for Life is aul.org. 
and there's a wealth of information on our website. Um, my book, Abuse of Discretion, is most easily obtained through Amazon, quickest and cheapest. Um, and uh, I'm sure that uh, Politics for the Greatest Good is also available online or, and through uh, Amazon. Thanks again. Uh, love having you on this show. If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm Rich Baker, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody.